truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. The uh, truth of Tompkins Square Park was if you went in that park at night, you could be killed in 10 feet in. They had fires burning, they had tents, there were all kinds of drugs, there were all kinds of sick people. I was out of control. Many people in the building were heroin, cocaine addicts. You'd hear shots at night, people would get shot right in front. A person got stabbed to death in front of my building. All kinds of darkness. There's one afternoon, I drive up to my building, you go upstairs, and I double parked, and I come back downstairs, and all hell is broken loose beyond the park's fence. People are heading onto the sidewalks on both sidewalks as the police head up Avenue A on horseback. The horse is now turned back and are heading towards Avenue A. There are people ripping tree limbs down and breaking car windows, setting them afire. And hordes and hordes of people racing around, drawing damage to storefronts and all these vehicles because the police were chased getting them out of there for the night curfew. That comes out of a helicopter. It's showing a searchlight from over a building onto 8th Street. The mayor, Giuliani, they established this program called Pressure Point. That was the name of it. Helicopters, police dogs, police with the shields. It was the turning point for the East Village. They had to do something. It was out of control. It was dangerous and dirty and drugs infested. infested. But they were going ass crazy. Oh, man, it was like a civil war. And there wasn't 10 people. There were thousands, wherever they came from. And it was days of riots, just not that day. I was a witness to it. My cab was double parked. I quick, fast got out of there. I had returned to Saudi in 1981. Robert, my friend, met me at the airport. He said, I got your bank book here. You want to see how much you saved? I said, no, I don't. I want to go to a bathhouse. I'm going to get laid. I don't give a shit about money. I don't care. I mean it. I'm not even bragging. I had rolling in money, big money. I looked like a really rich guy because I had the finest clothes. And I wasn't looking to look like that, but it just happened to be very hot looking. And I had great clothes. And I was rich. And I was good looking. So I wanted to go to Whorehouse. That's where you go. Come to Man's Country. See what we're all about and what we have to offer. Man's Country is a full-facility, multi-leveled complex that was designed to feature something for everyone. Come to Man's Country and develop your body or a friendship with somebody else's. Visit us once and you'll come again and again. For the best workout in town, it's Man's Country. 28. Well, no, now I'm, it's back in 1981. What's New York like? Wild. It was, it was no AIDS virus. All the bathhouses were steaming along. You literally would sit in this room with couches, and there was a menu of drugs for sale. You could buy anything. Heroin to shoot, heroin to smoke, uh, coke to shoot, coke to shoot, uh, LSD, marijuana, everything you wanted. It was a menu. 
and you'd order it and sit there and pay it and then bring it out to you in the package. Because I didn't have any fear. You know, I just got home and I was rich. What I did was I got into uh, heavy-duty drugs and I moved into a bathhouse. It was three floors of, and there was another building with three floors. It was a luxurious garden, a TV room, two orgy rooms, and, and, and neat little cubicles, private door, lamps, bed. It was really, really neat. It wasn't dirty. And it was a major whole house. It was a sexual supermarket. You know, it was not only based on sex, it was back re-communicating and re-established. It was like, wow, I have all this money. I can just stay here. It was only 24 bucks a day to rent. It was cheap. I stood there till I sowed my seeds. I made a lot of friends. I, I had gotten everything out of my system. But after all of that was said and done, I um, took the money and decided to do something with it. So Robert suggested, I agreed, we'll buy a small truck. I, I got a route, but moving parcel out of Williamsburg and began trucking. It's a tough business and there's a lot of work here. It always is. Then we advertised it in The Voice, and it was called AAA All, that's four A's, Borough, Triple A All Borough Trucking. So we were the top advertising in The Voice, and our phone rang off the hook. We picked up a lot of clients. I started moving finer items besides parcel and boxes, and we were hired by interior decorators to move fine art. I had Paloma Picasso as a customer, Charlotte Ford, uh, Niall Smith, interior designers, heaven. He had everything from antiquity to modern art. I mean it. We were in business for about eight years, and well, Robert got himself sick, and it was horrible. We were on First Avenue, about East 30th Street. His speaking was completely exaggerated. It wasn't making, he didn't put together sentences or full thoughts. It was very obvious that he had something going on. I went to an emergency room thinking he just had like a stroke or his something. The doctor said he has to be admitted, he's full blown AIDS. I said, what? Of course, I was blown away. Here's my heart and soul. My best friend. My best friend. Like a brother. I knew about it, and then I found out the name of it, and I still didn't completely get it. No one did. It was a big problem, of course. The cause of the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS, is unknown and there is no known cure. The deadly disease has been mostly striking homosexual men. More than 700 cases have been reported in New York, 1,600 in the country. You know what he did in the hospital and freaking blew me away? He sat up like this and he said, what are you going to do without me? And I just couldn't believe he said that. I said, you're not gonna do anything without you. You're not gonna be going anywhere. I didn't want to even think of him not being alive. 
And he said that. What are you going to do without me? He died so, so abruptly. And he was right. I went on a destructive trip. Oh, boy. After he got diagnosed quickly and passed away, God bless him, uh, his doctor said, you take a test, I would like you to do that. And I did, and I was HIV positive and had hep C from using and having sex. There were at least 10 of us. I mean it. I can know all of the names, but there's many. One by one, they were no longer around. There was no more to call. That also impacted my loneliness because with people we went to the anvil with and the baths with and the discos during those good years, they were no longer confidants because they were dead. I couldn't call Dale up and say, oh, I'm having a really hard time. Can I come over? No one was there. There was no one. I was the last of the Mohicans. I was absolutely isolated as if I'd moved to Chicago. There was nobody around anymore. I decided to move into my own East Village apartment, take some money out of the bank, and party to escape it all. I didn't care anymore. I just wanted to be selfish and, and, and abuse myself, I guess. Got into drugs and heavy-duty sex. So I decided to, like, buy, like, a suitcase full of cocaine Peruvian flake, so strong that if you touched it, you could feel it, you know, you could get high. It was light. It was pure. The best aphrodisiac you ever take, you could not control yourself. Hot to try, 24-7. It was amazingly powerful. Bought a lot of it from a discotheque owner in Miami. And uh, I learned how to shoot it up, which uh, was really stupid. It kept me from the reality of Robert being gone, the business being gone. I didn't have anything left. I would get into the elevator, you know, after buying the beers and porno and say, what the fuck are you gonna do about this problem? You can't even stop using. The minute I woke up, I used. It was, I was so addicted. I went to such a sorry state. My casket was being closed on me. I was in my house a summer day, and I'm so paranoid, I take all my stuff and pour it in the middle of the room because I'm sure someone's around. Well, I was using, and I, I thought I heard something. So I went to the front door, and I wiped my sweat off my brow and opened the, a pinhole window, little thing for the hallway. I saw, I mean it, I saw the devil and a nurse next to him 
The devil was wrapped in cellophane, pondering my death. Like, oh, he's gonna get dead, he's gonna take him. And the nurse was sp spastic. She was wearing a nurse's outfit and going really fast, like doing this, like it was so scariest thing. I got so paranoid, and that's probably why I saw these things. That's how nuts I was. I think it meant I was this close to dying and going to hell. I was a deviant prick. I was dark soul. I did stuff that I wouldn't tell you about to myself and others. You know, I would get six, six sheets of To The Wind with high chemical drugs, the major psychotic. I, I was dangerous. I don't know if you ever done coke. Have you done coke? No. Don't. It'll take you by the balls and you'll fight to get him back. Fucking drug, man. It's horror show. It's devil's makeup. It's terrible. It, it takes you into a falseness that is euphoria. It excites you sexually, like you feel like the only stud and you can handle and do anything and you feel so sexual. It's so powerful. It grabs a hold of your soul and your spirit and your body. Then you want more of it. It's really no joke. Got me. And I had to fight for my life. But here's how I really got out of addiction. I remember it was a summertime. It was just before July the 4th. Of course, being the asshole that I am, I decided it was okay to use again. It was just the devil. And I abscessed here. My arm blew up because I shot up so stupidly that my arm was infected and I had to go to the hospital. I get home from the hospital and, and I decided to shoot up in this arm. And then I ran out of drugs. And it was July 4th night. And I, I was so, so friggin' lonely. There was no one to call. I didn't have a phone call to the hustlers because I couldn't afford them anymore. Nobody wanted to know me because I was out of my mind. So I went down to the river where they were gonna have the fireworks. There was hordes and hordes of people. And I started looking in the garbage, drink sodas left over, thrown away. I was on the balls of my ass. I just walked back to my East Village apartment. It was roasting hot. I had a fan in the window, and I'm trying to sleep, sweating and anxiety filled. Guess what? Fireworks over the river. I could hear them. I got so physically depressed. Well, I said, oh my fucking God, about 3,000 times if I said it once, over and over and over, because I was so freaking blown away. That was my battle cry, I want my life back. It was just too dark and too brutal and dangerous in every way. I wanted out and that wasn't so easy. Up till Robert's death, I had everything. Health, looks, money, everything. There was nothing wrong. Now I had nothing. 
and everything was wrong. It went on for two years, my trying to get clean. What were you doing to try to get clean? I went across the street, there was an Odyssey house joint, started talking and went to groups. They said, you're, you're like one of the worst cases and uh, you're also positive. You're like dealing with death every hour. You need to leave the apartment and move in here. It's, it's just too rough for me. I'd never be able to handle it. So I didn't. But then I called up a place called Smithers. I mean, the protocol was you'd call them every day for about 10 days and say, I'm still here. Can you give me a bed uh, every day? And once you got a few days under your belt calling, they'd say, come up, we will admit you. Anyway, I went there, and a girl, a woman named Mary, she looks at me and goes, you're going to move in here with us? I own you for 31 days. What I say, you do, or you can leave. And it was a awakening cause. She'd wake me up at 6 in the morning to go get breakfast and then attend a prayer meeting. She had us write and write and write about the stories of this addiction, which took it to another level. I actually was reading this shit and saying, what a maniac you are. You practically broke. You're out of control because you can't stop using. You're HIV positive and you're hepatitis C. Your partner's dead. Nobody wants to know you. Do you realize the wreckage of your life up to this moment? And I broke. I, just, I was really aware of that then. And I'll tell you something, they turned me around. They, they really did. They taught me on my feet and I was tender. You know, I didn't get sober still. I still used after that a little. And then I would feel like all kinds of terrible. And I finally I said, Jerry, you have to make up your mind. My landlord saved me, John. He said, I heard you've been having a lot of trouble. You're bringing home a lot of derelicts. You're in trouble. I said, John, I am really in trouble. He goes, it's not going to help you by bringing these bums home. You've got to face this and get clean. He knew me. So he said, you know what I'll do? Give me your lease, and I'll give you 5000 bucks. Just sign these papers, and I'll give you a money order for five grand. but you got to leave because you're not good for the building and you're not helping yourself. And he was right. The neighbors would be frightened of me, everyone. I'd get home from coming home late at night, you hear the doors locking on the hallway. Jerry's home, because I was dangerous. My apartment was a shooting gallery. There was no way ever I could stay there and try to get clean. I mean, I would have two days sobriety, sometimes 11, but somebody would knock on the door a trick, a junkie, say, want a party? I said, yeah, hurry, get in. And it was stopped, again, I'd start the cycle. My friend had a cab, Jimmy. He lived in Queens. I met him at meetings. He always offered me a job driving for him, so I said, if I move out to Queens, I could get a job with you? He goes, definitely, but you got to stay clean. I moved here to a real estate with the money I had left over and the five grand I rented here. That was 20 years ago. The house was filthy, a dirty shag carpet, but I loved it here right away. I didn't have anything, and I didn't have a phone here, and I had no one to call if I had a phone. 
and no one around that I knew. I didn't know anyone here. And it was a sanctuary. So I said, oh, I got a real break from that environment. Finally, I got some time under my belt. I didn't have the temptation. I went to meetings, but I never brought anyone back here with me, even if they were sober 100 years. About 10 years, I didn't have any soul in here. My uncle was a cab driver. His father was a cab driver. I was a cab driver. I went and drove a cab. Jimmy was very fair with the lease. He drove the daytime shift and I drove night. And he was right here. So when I finished my shift, I'd park right around the block and he'd pick it up in the morning. It was our routine. I had a new home, a new life. Uh, I'm just thankful. Every night is an adventure. New York City at night is a, a madman's playhouse, really. When you drive as many as I did and what was going on when, we seen things that were outrageous, murders and suicides, a lot of drugs, a lot of sex in the back seat. It was real. One Chinese dude was snorting heroin. I knew it. He had his little key out, and I could hear him, and I knew it because he was... I could tell he was using heroin because he'd scratch his head and do this, and I knew it, and I didn't say anything. Did I have temptations? No. I, I fought them right off with remembering what it was like. I said, no, you're not going to go back to that. I'm on 61 on Fifth Avenue at the Pierre Hotel. It's raining. I have a customer, yellow cab, red light, and my customer said, who is that? And I look, he said, what? I pull down the window, and I look under the canopy of the Pierre where they have the lamps, those heater lamp things, and there's Edie, Beal. Whenever I lived with her, she always had a kerchief, so I never knew she, the extent of her baldness, which was caused by alopecia. But this night, she was just wearing a gold snake emblet. It was beautiful, uh, wrapped around her skull, and she seemed much taller than I remembered her to be. Seeing her that night really freaked me out, somehow more than ever. It was a powerful moment. I never realized how absolutely unique she was completely till that night. I knew she was unique, but I mean it, guys. There was a, a, a rarity. Her presence, you know, her eccentricity was at a zenith that night. And there she is under the heaters, and my customers again said, who's that? And I said, that's Edie Beale. And she said, who's that? I said, never mind, you didn't understand. But she was so dynamically individual. What an individual she was. That was the last time I saw Edie Beale.
I still find it fascinating that they loved me as they did. I had no life before them. I had been beaten by my father. I had to shoplift food. We, and they were from the complete opposite end of the social ladder. I mean, I was a runaway from Brooklyn. My parents worked for the city of New York. We weren't raised in the same fashion or near it as the Bouvier clan. None of it. Baths closed one after the other because of the virus. Um, all of that, as dark as it was, as out of control as it was, were all gone. The corners we'd smoke pot on, the corners we'd dance in the bars at, they were gone. What was it like? It was sad. It was like I was a ghost. I witnessed things in these buildings, these locations, that were like, at one time, fun and memorable and had friends or family. When I would drive past them, I felt like I'm the last one here and uh, these are things I will cherish, but I want to live to live on to see more stuff. I, I want to be happy again, I can't use. I said, you're not gonna fuck this up, talking to myself. You're gonna take this seriously. I had a really good opportunity, which I cherished. Um, I started getting uh, medicine for the virus about, well, about 20 years now. Um, my best friend, Wayne, who was unfortunately murdered, God bless him, he said to me, uh, I'm going to start treatment. And I said, I'm not going to start that. That's going to be sick. I'm strong and all this shit. It was my fear of dying from it. And I saw a photograph of that someone took of me in the garden. And I looked really, I don't, you would not recognize me. I looked sick. I mean, I was dark in the eyes and pale. Virus was getting stronger. But, uh, when I went to the doctors and had my labs read to me, he said, you have 90 million copies. They will open the door one day and it's gonna knock you dead. I knew I wouldn't die of it, but it, until the doctor told me that you have 90 million copies, that's a lot of virus. Well, I was living here. I was, uh, um, it was not anything special going on except that I was at the gym. I had quit smoking and I was consistent, clean, and getting stronger. I just beat the hep C with the new hep C medicine that's been approved. My HIV status is non detectable. I could not spread it if I wanted to do that, which I wouldn't. I have less than 50 copies of the virus because of the meds I take, the gym I go to, the food I eat, the liquor I don't drink, the drugs I don't take. I'm determined not to get that illness. 
after I saw Roberts going through that, it freaked me out. Well, at the end of my uh, ruining my health, at the end of the turbulent, dark years of using, uh, I got strong enough to know how to guide myself through temptation that I could actually depend on me finally again. I know to get up in the morning, eat good, and hit the gym. That turns my day right into a good day. But look in the mirror, you're the only one that can be happy. You can make your own happiness. And that's it. I can depend on myself to do that. Really, the karma of being compassionate and good to people, no attitude about it, it really is the, the stuff that life is made of. It's really, that's why we're human. You know, we're not going to be on this earth forever. You know, I, I find compassion my strength. Through the life that I have lived, I have finally found that I can depend on myself to live it, for sure. I used to carve stone since 1987 with Robert. I used to work in this hallway, the stairwell of his building, on a little bench, wooden, carved and made a mess to super hate in my guts. But I was carving marble there because I'd never place to do it. Ten years ago, I registered for school because I didn't have a place to work. I didn't have the guts to register in such a school because Pablo Picasso's people went there. Roy Lichtenstein went there. Jackson Pollock went there. I'm a cab driver. I'm going to go there. I didn't think I had it in me, the stuff. But the first year I started, I carved him. I got a scholarship that I'm still using. There. I go there. It's complete peace and harmony. It, I, when I start working and I'm not interrupted, I forget who I am. I don't think of things. I'm absent of the world. I just work. It's great freedom. It's peace. I have real peace. I mean, I, I will work myself till I'm beat. I, I mean, I work 10-hour days at school, and it just... I'm a dirt bomb, it doesn't matter. I'm full, I can got my work, I got my tools, that's it. You know, it's really something I'm, I have a calling for. It's a complete liberty. To yield something out of as difficult a medium as this is exactly what my life has been. This is discipline. This is one subject that if you don't have discipline, you're wasting your time. And you have to have perseverance. You have to love it. It's sort of like a reflection of life itself. The more you love life, the more you'll 
work with it. When I do carve my own tombstone, I'm gonna include the people that loved me alongside their symbols, like a single rose from Mrs. Beale and Edie, for my parents, a grapevine on a, a granite stone, and for me, a fawn, a standing sculpture of a small marble fawn. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Bart Barshaw, Paulus Van Horn, Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. The music you heard in this episode was provided by Total Control, Coco Leaf, and me, Dance Was Any. If you're interested in hearing more of any of those bands, You can find links to all of their music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Over at the website, you can find all of our past episodes, season one, two, and three. Ways to subscribe to our newsletter, as well as photos of Jerry's past and present, with current photos taken by Sarah Mesa. You can find Everything Is Stories on all of the social media platforms and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Follow us, subscribe, and engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>